Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Social Innovation Podcast. My name is Zal Dastur, and I'm here today with Mark Allen and Grace Sai, the co-founders of Unravel Carbon. Welcome, guys. Thank you for coming. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Happy to be here. Um, just uh, why don't you tell the uh, listeners, because I know that basically what Unravel does is it helps. Uh, it's a software platform that helps companies track and reduce their, their carbon emissions. Um, so why don't you guys tell us a, a little bit more about, about the company uh, and what it does? Yeah, so, you know, we're only about eight months old, but Mark has been in this space for 15 years. And for me, it's, um, it's been slightly more recent. But um, we both came together to want to bring, you know, rigorous data science, um, highly technical climate science into what is wrapped into a product-led software so that we can enable the participation of companies small and big into the global fight against climate change. So that's essentially um, what we are and we believe that um, all companies should um, measure and reduce their carbon emissions um, no matter where they are or what size, they're, what size they are. And ultimately, all companies will probably have to start measuring and reducing their carbon emissions at some point as well. I mean, I have a couple of questions about that a little bit later. I'm on. sure. Why don't we? Why don't we? Why don't we start? I know that Grace, you alluded to it uh, briefly, but why don't we start just a little bit and, and, and tell people about your backgrounds and kind of like what brought you guys here? So, Mark, if you if you'd like to start. Yeah, sure. So, um, as Grace said, yeah, I've been in the climate change space for um, a bit over 15 years uh, now. So I'm a chemical engineer by training and I worked um, a, in sort of industry as a chemical engineer for the first part of my career. But then, you know, 15 years ago, decided to concentrate on sustainability and climate change. Um, there was a lot going on in 2007 and um, a lot of policy frameworks coming up and I made the decision that was an area to, to concentrate on. And since then, I've been working in consulting companies. I've worked in large corporations as sort of greenhouse gas technical manager, and I've done consulting work to large companies like BP and Shell and Unilever and others, and as well as with governments on policy frameworks and decarbonisation pathways for, uh, for countries in Singapore and Australia. So, um, yeah, to really... Quite a long time working across that value chain and everything from estimating emissions to developing large-scale decarbonisation options and um, uh, developing strategy as well. Um, I came from a very different background. I'm a two times founder, both times exited, and in between I was also a, um, a venture capitalist. I ran a fund that invested in 13 early-stage tech companies you know, now this would be my third venture and hopefully the most impactful of all. And the reason I started Unravel was because last year when my daughter was turning two years old and my second company was going to be acquired, I um, asked myself if I have one more startup in me and if if I had, what, would, what problem would I solve? And um, we were asked to write a will for, for my daughter, you know, hashtag adulting. And um, although it's super cliche, but it was honestly the first time that I truly connected with the future. I really had to sit down and think about what we were leaving behind. And it dawned on me that what was the point of leaving all these material things for her when the planet she inherits for her generation and generations to come are literally, is literally burning. And that was really a wake-up call um, because I feel like if we don't connect with the future, we wouldn't care enough 
you know, to, to do something that would, um, th- that would have trade-offs in our lifetime. Um, our generation would escape, you know, the, 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 the full impact of the climate crisis we're in, but her generation and, and, and the future ones to come will not. So that was really, a, yeah, a wake-up call, and that turned me from being a bystander overnight to wanting to dive right in and bringing all that I can bring, you know, um, capital, networks, experience, all the battle scars of having started two ventures um, to, to help decelerate the impacts of climate change together with Mark. I hear that as a very common reason. People have children and they realize, like, what is the world that we're going to be leaving for them? And and that makes the the kind of realization of, wow, we're destroying this planet so much realer and clearer. What brought you guys together to start this particular project? How did you guys meet? What was the sort of genesis of it? So Mark and I have already been friends for six years plus. He was a member at the Hubzell, just like how we met, right? Um, and so many of our common friends. Um, it is. It was truly, you know, a like-minded um, community of people that came together. And honestly, um, Mark has always been that quiet genius who is doing things that people don't understand, right? Before sustainability was sexy and hot like it is today, he was already working on that day and night. And so I kind of knew him as that quiet um, sustainability expert that has no relevance to, to my work, right? Um, but then... When I had the idea of, you know, how we can build Unravel into a scalable product-led um, software, um, he was really the, the number one choice um, co-founder in terms of who might bring the best um, sustainability expertise. And re- realistically, I was, um, you know, turned super quickly, I guess. At, at the time, I was running my own consulting company, and the, the company was... Um, small but uh, you know doing good work and um, I had um, you know, a whole number of clients but um, I, yeah I think it took about 10 minutes <laughs> for me to be convinced to, to get on board right and and for me this is something that's been sort of circulating in my mind for a few years in fact I was, I was talking to one of my former employees recently and she's like oh you I'm glad you're doing this because you've been talking about it for so long right and um but I didn't know anything about you know venture funds and capital markets and uh, all of the stuff that it takes to actually build a startup so um I think in in that regard um uh, we actually work really well together it sounds like there's a, a fantastic balance of skill sets there where you know Grace has obviously got the experience of building and exiting two companies and, and Mark with the sustainability side of the, the, the deep knowledge in the industry um, and both of you kind of complementing each other really well. I would ask, there are a lot of software out there and um, I've noticed that there is an increase you know, in the reporting side of it as well, which is the area that you guys are tackling. So... Uh, with whatever you're comfortable to reveal, I guess yeah. the question is, what's the secret sauce? What makes you guys uh, so special? Okay, so to be exact, there are 92 carbon accounting softwares out there. Okay, we have done a thorough competitive Okay. <laughs> True, <laughs> so there's a lot. Yeah. yeah, however... Um, I think I think that's where the difference comes in, right? We are not a carbon accounting 
platform, right? A lot of them, a lot of our peers, they do a great job um, helping companies measure perhaps with, you know, more average um, emission factors rather than granular and then uh, and then a chunk of them would then sell um, offsets to help companies get to net zero right for us the missing piece in the middle which is reduce first offset last um, is really where we spend most of our time thinking and building um, huge um, data science capabilities around so we have we're building an engine that would suggest a decarbonization pathway um, to get to net zero or whatever climate goal that the, that the company sets on, on our platform. So the reduction part requires very nuanced expertise and networks in local jurisdictions governed by local policies. Um, and Mark will be, I'm sure, give you a very good example of such things, right? Like buying racks, for example, in Indonesia is, is, you know, is very prone to its local jurisdiction. And so these sort of knowledge creates a natural regional moat for us, right? Where, you know, just another software um, cannot just come in to, to say, I can help companies actually reduce their carbon emissions. Yeah, this, this automated solutions identification, and they're not generic solutions either. They're, you know, bespoke to the context of um, a particular facility in a particular location. And um, you know, as Grace alluded to, there are certainly nuances, lo localised nuances that mean certain things can and can't be deployed in, um, uh, in different countries. Um, but that whole process in a highly automated way, and our entire platform is very, very automated, uh, is, is super novel. Right, you know, in all of my um, dealings, I've I've not seen anything um, like this. That's you know highly automated gives you, you know, an idea and decision support around in what order should you be doing particular um, uh, deploying particular solutions. How much are they going to cost? What is the impact going to be? That that that's I think something that's that's very very new and exciting and very, very different. Um, and, and it is uh, one of the things I said, you know, when we originally started talking about this is the, the big focus for me is, you know, once we have emissions numbers is the, the so what now? What do we do with this information? And how do we enable decarbonisation off the back of that, which is, you know, my own primary focus. How do I reduce as many emissions as possible? Um, you know, we have a goal. Yeah, we have a goal of helping decarbonize one gigaton by 2030, which is very much um, around 5% of the global reduction target, which is ambitious coming out of Singapore. 5% of the global reduction target, right? That is that is certainly a very ambitious goal. Like there's something that you said here, which I absolutely loved, um, which is reduce first, offset last. And I think that a lot of what I know that in the news recently, there's been a lot of discussion around the fact that companies are claiming that they're net zero by buying offsets and whether those offsets are as genuine as the company may hope or claim them to be is also another issue. So the fact that this is something that's looking specifically at how does the company reduce first as a and, and what are the changes that it must make, I think that is a very powerful message to be sending and one that's very... Um, that, that that is critical right now yeah and you it, it may take longer right and it requires more discipline and more attention but it is the only way really to to do this if we really really want to save the planet literally
I know that you guys do this by plugging into a business's accounting data. And that's a large part of why you're able to process. Are you are you seeing any pushback from the companies about divulging this sort of the nitty gritty and the and the deep dark secrets of their business to you or and hope I mean, you know, because because they're giving you that data or are companies that are signing up, you know, they know what they're getting involved in. They're 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 part of the mission uh, and they want to be on site. Yeah, I, I think we're, realistically we have not seen much pushback um, from anyone uh, so far, and you know be, even to the extent that a lot of times um, you know when people start thinking about you know, I'm going to be uploading this data to the cloud, a lot of times people are already uploading this data to the cloud. So you're using SAP or you're using um, Zero or something, and so it's going there anyway. Um, so you know, th- this is really no different, assuming that we have you know all of the right um, uh, controls in, in place, right? Um, but yeah, so far we have not experienced much pushback. I think people recognise that this is certainly a way to get the information. Um, they do need to provide some information in any case, no matter who's doing the emissions reporting for them. And all we're doing is just trying to do that in a highly automated way. So I think there's a recognition in the value of that rather than trying to hide financial data. And and look, realistically, like I said, a lot of it's being uploaded to the cloud anyway, also showing it to your accountant or whoever's doing your end of year filings. And, you know, that there's, um, and it's a highly checked and viewed and um, a visible source of data. And, and then as we get into sort of, list goes and, and things like that, you know, they're reporting this data publicly in, in any case at a rolled up level. So, yeah, so far, no, no, no one's had any anything to hide. And these companies, when in terms of the ones that you are, you're dealing with, um, what is the next stage after the reporting? So you get the report, you get all this wonderful data and let's say a top 10 or top 20 list of things that this company should embark on because I understood from the reading that you even prioritize for the business how they should go go about the next steps. Are you guys there to see that through to the end or is that really then left up to the business to handle by themselves? It's a bit of both, actually. So so we're there to provide support. We have a, a team of consultants that exists within the company as well, right? And, and so we don't the market's not at a place where people want to be left alone with a carbon reporting um, software or a decarbonization pathway um, software uh, because climate change is still relatively new to them. It's a bit scary. They don't quite understand everything. So we have a team of climate experts that works with you. If they need support with implementation, then we can connect them with actual implementation partners. So we're not going to do, you know, boots on the ground, we're going to implement your solar PV plant for you. That That's not um, uh, what we're here to do, but we're also, we are, of course, happy to support, connect people where we can. We um, have a low carbon marketplace that exists within, within the platform, which is these are the suppliers we like. These are, you know, different people that supply low carbon versions of things that you buy, or these are implementation partners, engineering companies, et cetera. Um, and then, of course, an offsets um, part, part of that as well. So 
companies can get that support and can get that support from us until it gets to a, you know, now you've got to do something. But then, of course, we're still there to continue to track emissions, measure performance against these plans and these pathways that we've put in place. And, um, you know, and then it becomes a how do we disclose the good work that we're doing and how do we use this to inform a target setting under science-based targets initiative and how do we ensure that we are in line with the Paris Agreement, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's a long journey to get down to, to net zero and net negative ultimately. Yep, and so we're a SaaS plus service model. Um, we, we don't just leave our clients with the platform and, you know, they're on their own. So every month, um, even small companies can have um, X number of hours with the sustainability consulting team and then larger enterprises have more more time with, with us. But, um, you know, compared to the manualness of how things are done right now, um, it's still being the, 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 the main bulk of the uh, load is done through the SaaS platform. I've been running SaaS pretty much my whole career, and so I know that you need uh, funding for SaaS. And uh, that's the only way SaaS companies grow really at the beginning. And you guys, if I'm not wrong, have you done the largest seed round ever for a sustainability company in Southeast Asia? Um, definitely top five uh, <laughs> from, 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 from what I know. So, you know, uh, congratulations on that. And I, and I just thought maybe... I'm sure there are a lot of founders out there listening and a lot of people that are um, thinking about starting companies is, you know, maybe they're not such ambitious targets, but obviously, Grace, you're very seasoned in being able to raise capital for businesses. So, you know, is there any advice you'd give for people to go in through that process and the kind of work that they should do to get get the attention of uh, investors? I would say that when it comes to the climate tech space, it is really important to build um, anything based on deep climate science. Okay, that's number one. I think the world doesn't need another, you know, um, not for the lack of a better word, right, gimmicky um, platform um, to make people feel feel good. Um, and so that's our, our first proposition, right? Like. Um, our software engineering is basically dictated by the the technical climate science expertise that we have. I think another thing was when I first um, started Unravel, I, I felt hugely underqualified, right, when it comes to climate science because it is really technical. Um, it's not funny, you know, like it, you, it will take years to really get into the details and of everything. So I do remember, though, that Mike Moritz at Sequoia once said that they really value outsiders, um, especially in problem areas that have been super stubborn and very hard to solve. So these, these outsiders, like, like me, would bring the fresh uh, perspectives, a new lens onto a very old problem. So I found that, thankfully, I listened to some podcasts, right? The power of podcasts, by the way. Um, I, I've listened to, to some podcasts who actually highlighted that part in one of my, you know, evening walks, thinking if I'm, I'm, I was qualified enough to do Unravel. I completely agree that, you know, in having somebody from outside the industry take a look at, some, at a problem that people inside the industry, they come with new thinking, new ideas, new concepts, and and sustainability and climate change is a is a team sport right you have everybody's trying to solve their one part i mean i'm i'm always amazed at sometimes the 
how micro some of the solutions can be. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to really like help smallholder rice farmers, for example. And then you look at someone like you where you're like, well, how do we tackle it on the other side? So it's so interesting to see different perspectives of that same scale. Uh, and I think it's only going to be, you know, thousands of people chipping away at small problems that eventually are going to bring every the whole thing down the same way we have thousands of people creating the problem now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another another thing I would add uh, on, the, uh, on this investor question, right, and how you're attractive as a um, investable company is that I think people in climate tech should know um, that it, this sector deserves the best of the best talent, right? Um, and we cannot compromise. We should not compromise on the high standards of, of, the, of the talent force that we need to come solve this problem. So in our team, we, we definitely did not compromise. You know, for example, the guy leading our tech and data science literally has a PhD in string theory, like theoretical physics, right? And he's one of the best um, AI machine learning minds around in North America. And we're convincing him to move from Toronto to here. You know, Toronto is a huge AI hub, by the way. Even if it took us four months to find this person, it's worth it. You know, he's already making such a, such a big difference. Right, Mark. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and and um, you know, and and that's such such a good point because you know this is a, a big issue, you know, potentially the biggest issue around um, to solve, and um, yeah, it really does need, I guess, the world's brightest people uh, to. You know, all be pointing towards this. I, 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 hopefully, you know, my utopian mind foresees a time where everyone is working towards sort of decarbonisation and action on climate change and sustainability and all these things, and it actually just becomes the norm. This is the way we do, we do stuff. Um, but you know, we're a little bit away from that uh, time at the moment. But um, yeah, ultimately, we do need you know the best people to be putting their mind to these really, really big issues. Because time's running pretty short, to be frank. I would say from a business point of view, one of the things that I've noticed in the last maybe five, six years is that previously a lot of companies, when they were claiming to be sustainable or green, there was either a premium that had to be paid or it was a substandard product. And I think now the difference that we're seeing is that people are coming out with business models that are profitable and for example if the business does well every dollar of revenue that it makes contributes to the reduction in carbon so you know an example becomes like uh, they have now clean cement right so you're not you're not taking a hit by purchasing this product and every building that they build is is a reduction of carbon that they do and that's linked to their profitability and i think that's you know, where we're seeing the world going is that companies that are greener, that are profitable, that are actually providing uh, value and in many cases can be better products, you know, mm. uh, than, the, than the existing products. So I think that's a shift, but whether it's happened fast enough and whether it will happen at a rate that needs to happen, I think that's another question altogether. Um, I wanted to ask you guys about speed and about regulation. Because I know that you're Asia-focused mainly. Obviously, software is a global solution, but you, you know, you're based in Asia, Australia, Australia. And, and 
I know in Europe, for example, there's a lot of forced regu financial regulation around disclosure of carbon as a, as a first step. And the U.S. is also talking about it, I believe. I know that Asia traditionally lacks this regulation. Are we, are we moving at a, at a fast enough speed? that you guys see that are there changes happening or is it really going to be mm. private sector led and public sector followed? Yeah, this is a really, really good question. And it's under discussed, I feel, in Asia. We are not just traditionally lagging. We are currently still lagging as a, as a continent. That's fact number one. Fact number two, though, is that we are, we are home to 70% of global supply chains. Okay, scope three, which is what we specialize in. And fact number three is that we're responsible for... 60% of global emissions. So Asia has to buck up, right? Asia has to wake up and lead the charge in, in supply chain emissions reduction. So um, we are we, we have a global product, as you say, you know, the software is a global product. We do target sectors and companies globally in North America and Europe that have their supply chains in Asia. So a lot of their scope three have the proximity to our home ground advantage. Um, and the regulation part is definitely catching up. You know, you see um, stock exchanges like SGX um, mandating sector, you know, a couple of sectors every year to, to, to disclose. Um, I know Mark has a strong opinion around regulators as well, um, playing, playing a big role. And we definitely do see them as playing a main role in changing behaviour. And, and I will say... Um, I do think regulators and regulations are catching up quickly in, in the region and in many ways it's actually being led by Singapore. Um, and even something, I guess, as simple as, you know, the Singapore carbon price came in in 2019, fairly late for, for carbon prices, came in very modest, $5 a tonne. But the acceleration in that is huge and you know by by 2030 it'll be you know 50 to 80 dollars a ton and um, that becomes now sort of a world level sort of policy framework that uh, that they're putting in place and then of course as grace mentioned all of the stock exchanges and others um, sort of also mandating that uh, Companies, LISCOs have to disclose their emissions and their climate risk exposure, and um, you know then we'll see more of this happening over time. I mean, one could argue that even at fifty or eighty dollars a ton, it is still under the value that sort of international organisations really view that carbon should be at sort of a uh, hundred plus a ton. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That no, no, no. Um, a, disagreement there from me and you know even if you look at the older numbers of uh, the social cost of carbon that was being um, bandied around in the states um, you know during Obama's presidency you know that the social cost of carbon is sitting at hundreds of dollars per ton being the total impact of CO2 um, so yeah it, there, there's still a ways to go but uh, having that framework in place now is actually really, really powerful I mean I'm a big believer that there needs to be or businesses need to pay for the carbon yeah. that they emit. And once you start forcing them to pay is only when they start then seriously taking how do they reduce all of their emissions because it's hitting their bottom line. And unfortunately, as much as I would love us to be a sustainability first world, I think we're for the last 80 to 100 years, 
maybe more we've been a profit first world and i and i think trying to change that mindset uh, it it may be possible it may not be but you can only play in the game that you're in so once you start hitting people where they're making money i see that's where the biggest difference starts happening correct the decision the decision to change behavior at scale has to come from an existential threat out of commercial survivability you know so in essence you know if i don't disclose i will lose clients right so this is another area that um you know governments and regulators can lead through their green procurement strategies so they can literally come up to say i will not purchase i will stop purchasing right from suppliers and vendors that do not disclose or reduce their carbon right that is one simple step that i think singapore is also leading more and more large enterprises conglomerates that have um a concentrated bargaining power um over their supply chains need to behave that way as well right we really have a very practical view on this our entire product itself is is created around the insight that given a choice nobody wants to care about climate change nobody right it is something that we take for granted for you know the planet is for us to appropriate value of right not for us to heal so so you know it, it really has needs to come to a point of an existential threat just just like what the planet is facing i think you're absolutely right i think unfortunately there are a lot of people in the world that do care and i see more and more caring every day but i don't think that it's enough and i don't think that the education and the pace at which that's moving is happening fast enough we're talking about large scale regulation and big changes i wanted to say uh, congratulations to both of you because i uh, just heard that you will be representing singapore at uh, cop 27 in egypt this year uh, as part of i believe a delegation of 140 uh, that will be going there so that's really the leading place where climate hopefully policy is dictated for countries in the future is there you know do you guys have any um, anything you'd like to achieve what would you like to see going there what would you tell me about what you're looking forward to in the experience <laughs> i don't know if you're representing singapore but we we're definitely proud to be part of the singapore contingent but we we really only have one goal there right which is to um share the stories data driven customer stories right of um of projects and clients that we have had the privilege of helping in in the past 8 months so we want to show because cop cop is a is a great place to talk about how capital is flowing right into into saving the planet but we would like to showcase examples of what those capital has done yeah so we hope that um by doing so letting the work speak for themselves um we would be able to position asia as maybe not so much a laggard right but actually there's some um data driven results and outcomes coming out of it already and mark you mentioned it's always been a a, a life goal of yours to to attend this so you must be looking forward to it I I am that feel that feels like a really selfish reason to want to go but absolutely it's it's been something that I've been wanting to do for for some time that's the center of you know global climate change negotiations you know as the home of the Kyoto protocol and the um uh, the Paris agreement and and these these really really big 
audacious, you know, um, frameworks as so, you know, just to be in and around that is actually, you know, for me, um, really, really awesome. And um, to see that sort of thing up close, not that we're going to be in the negotiating rooms at all, but, um, uh, you know, to be to be around that, I, I think, is is something that's super interesting for me um, and, you know, be be close to these really, really, and, and it can be really technical and um, conversations around things like carbon markets and non-market mechanisms and, and this sort of um, arguing over brackets within texts and, and things. But, um, you know, that's that's really the, the, the centre of it all, right? And it's the outcomes of... So the way I look at it is the outcomes of COP, right, inform national policy and then national policy is what businesses have to respond to, right? So so there's a clear line between what happens at the COP meetings and what businesses and what risk businesses are exposed to in the transition to a zero carbon economy, right? And, you know, and this is where you can start to see inklings around sort of carbon prices and direct regulation of emissions and, you know, climate finance flows and technology flows to least developed nations and all of these things that are super important to to um, decarbonize because, you know, one country or one set of countries going net zero won't fix the problem. All countries have to go net zero and, and everyone has to come along for the ride and, and, you know, there's a responsibility for um, a, what they call in, in sort of UN speak common but differentiated responsibilities, right, which is uh, how everyone has a common interest in reducing emissions, but individual countries have got different capacity to deal with it. So then it's incumbent on the developed world to provide support for the developing world. And a lot of this is in COP as well. And, to, you know, just to... to be part of that is is amazing. So, so I'm like totally geeking out on climate policy yeah. now. <laughs> I mean, I, last year there was a very powerful speech that was given by I believe it was a leader of, of a Caribbean country. It was a lady, mm. um, and it was really basically that's what she was saying, you know, which is you can ask us to reduce, but one we need help, but two, you know. It need it needs to be shown from from the front. There needs to be leading from the front. Grace, you said something which I just wanted to go back to. You said data driven customer stories. Um, are you able to share? I mean, you don't have to mention company names or anything if you're not comfortable. But are you able to share some of these some of the stories that you are hoping to you're hoping to tell these delegates about? Well, um, you guys all have to stay tuned. Maybe we can do a live uh, podcast when we're in Egypt with you. Um, but, that would be um, very cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, But, you know, we have launched a couple of sectors and we have um, users in those sectors, right? Um, for example, in food and agri, end-to-end, we already have some case studies to, to share over there. Um, in technology and e-commerce, and then in fashion, textile, apparel, and footwear, um, we we are also you know getting ready to to wrap up a few um, projects to be able to communicate that. I think I think um, what is beautiful is that we already have more than twenty over countries right using our platform. 
so the the the, the stories will also vary geography um, by geography, and um, the different types of motivations as well. Some are using us for regulatory um, compliance pressure. Um, most others are from voluntary pressure, right? What is the difference in user behavior, frequency of usage, and their engagement with it? So, you know, just just things that are we have observed um, from the ground up perspective. Great, and um, I, I just have one last question. I, I do like to ask all the founders on 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 that come on the show, which is, there are a lot of people out there that want to do something, they don't know how to make that first step. Uh, you know, both of you had moments in your life which catalyzed this change. What is the advice that you have for someone out there that does want to make a difference or does want to make an impact? How would you suggest that they start? It's funny because I, I was actually thinking about this and I was having this discussion with someone just the other day, actually. And um, uh, what I said to them was 15 years ago, it was really simple. You just started working in climate change because it wasn't a thing. Right. And uh, it was really easy to just sort of get into that. You know, I think to get a start, you know, we need we need this this base level of skills. And I'm not saying everyone needs to you know, go back to university and do a master's, but, um, you know, at, at least yeah, doing enough sort of reading to understand, you know, the, the, the parts of the sort of sustainability value chain, value network that, that you're interested in. Sustainability is pretty broad, Church. Um, and, you know, there's value in in developing expertise in a particular area within within sustainability. So, you know, learning, absorbing as, as much as possible. And then, you know, really getting out there and talking to people and getting sort of advice on, on where to go and how to pivot sort of a career into this area and and look you know i i, I did the pivot um you know there's a lot of technical stuff in, in climate change and there's real benefits in um you know having an engineering degree to support that as well um but yeah it's i think the way to get a start is actually to talk to people who are in in the area and what i find is everyone is is actually quite approachable you know if you just send someone a message on LinkedIn or whatever and like, hey, can I meet up for coffee? Most of the time they'll say yes. Um, and, and that's something I advise. I like to term it is that there are no assholes in climate. You know, if you've got uh, if you've got people that are caring about the planet, you've got to have a, some sort of an altruistic part of you, right? You're not going to be inherently entirely selfish. And so, you know, most people that I've found, I've been so pleasantly surprised at the people that I've reached out to and said, hey, can I meet for a coffee? Or, do you know, would you like to be on this show? And and the number of people that, because they want to help, because they genuinely want the space to grow, they want it to increase in size, that they're very accommodating and very helpful. I think that's a good point. I think everyone's in this for the right reasons um, at the end of the day. So, sorry, Chris, please go. Most people are in this for the right reasons. There we go. <laughs> for me, I would say that um, each of us um, wears different hats, right? Multiple hats even. So we're all citizens of a country. Um, so definitely from that perspective, we should vote for politicians who have have um, have sustainability, true sustainability pathways and plans, not just pledges and promises um, as part of their campaign and, and vote them in and hold them accountable, right? To actually 
executing, oper- operationalizing, and achieving some of those plans. Um, a lot of us also work for companies. Um, in that respect, how many of us have truly asked whether our companies have made a, a net zero plan or, or even communicated a net zero promise, right? Not a lot of us think about that. We ask about salaries, we ask about career advancement. We, we, we even see, you know, we even now talk about mental um, well, health and wellness and neurodiversity, right? Um, but what about what about the company's responsibility towards the, the main stakeholder, which is the planet? So everyone should ask, right? And, and raise these questions with their, with their employers. And then I would say on a very personal level, find that connection to the future, right? Because if, if it's not emotional, it's very hard to change truly. I mean, that's, that's fantastic advice. Um, both Mark and Grace, I want to thank you guys so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you both. Thank you, Zell. That was fun. Thank you, Zell. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. <laughs>